right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, for those of you who, who maybe this is your first time here, my name is Drew, and, and I, along with Scott, who's just doing announcements, and Rachel Vincent, who, who is uh, waiting on a late babysitter um, and is on her way, um, we kind of help run this, um, run this ministry here each week. What, what a typical night looks like here and, uh, is, is that we spend some time opening up the Bible and, and studying through that together. This year we're in the Gospel of Mark. And we, every Thursday night, walk through that gospel verse by verse, studying Jesus and his ministry and his teaching um, during his time here on earth. Uh, a couple of us usually kind of spend some time teaching through that together. Um, but once or twice a semester, we do this thing called coffee and questions or Q&A night or whatever, where um, we want to basically kind of turn the floor over to you guys a little bit and let you ask questions that are on your minds and, and things that you're wrestling and thinking through. And so... That's what's going on tonight, hence the coffee, um, and then coming up, the questions. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, I know, you see how that works? Um, so, so here, but, but tonight is a little bit different in that we've sort of narrowed the focus. So, we're, we're going to be talking specifically around the Christian faith tonight, but in these four areas. Um, the first is truth. And so, the big question there is, is, is the Christian faith capable of giving us truth? Namely, are the scriptures of the Christian faith, the Bible, are those reliable and trustworthy? Can we actually place our faith in those as an adequate source of truth for our lives? Um, second, science. One of the greatest struggles today in kind of the public sphere seems to be between these two issues of science and religion. Right? That's, that's the way it often looks. And, and how can a person be a thinking person who, who trusts um, the laws of nature and the things that they have witnessed in it and examined in science and also believe in a supernatural being who does miracles and created the world and all those things. Um, like, how do those two things go together? Can they go together? And what is the Christian perspective on those two things, whether or not they blend and how they work together? Um, and then also we're going to be talking about these two things, manhood and womanhood. Um, Two issues that, that we believe to be are, are really big, but two issues that especially in the area of womanhood, um, Christianity is also seen or is often seen as being backwards and antiquated on its view of what womanhood is, but also on its view of what manhood is. And so we're going to be talking about what, what is the Christian definition or the Christian view of what manhood ought to be and what womanhood ought to be and all, are those um, justifiable in, in light of what we read in Scripture and in light of kind of the world around us. And so we're going to be talking through those. What's going to happen is actually we're going to have four different kind of um, people on our panel tonight. And we're going to give them about five minutes each to share kind of their perspective. And then after that, we're going to sit, turn it over to questions for you. You can um, write those questions down. You can, if you've got anything to turn in, we're going to have kind of a break at some point. You can, if you, um, if you want to, we'll have time and you can, if you're Bold enough and brave enough, just raise your hand and ask it. If it's something that you don't want to speak in front of everybody, i got to find a marker that works. I'm going to give you all my digits real quick. So That's not 4OS, just so you know. Yeah, don't. Okay, text me. You can text me that, and I will, I will kind of ask that question. If, if we have time, we'll kind of see how many we can get to. But if possible, I'll try and ask that to him. So... That's what, will, that's what will be happening. Let me real quick introduce the people that are teaching tonight, and then I'll kind of let them um, take it away. So, Ryan, can you stand up real fast? 
This is Ryan Vincent. He's been here to teach before and also on some of our coffee and questions tonight. And Ryan is going to be dealing specifically in this area of truth and the scriptures. Ryan has his, his bachelor's here in architecture and he has his master's in theology. theology. And so he has spent a lot of time studying this subject and, and this issue of, of the Christian faith and the Bible and its reliability. So he's going to be sharing about that and he'll be probably a great person to be directing questions about that towards. Um, Jeff White over here. Yeah, stand on up, Jeff. Jeff was here last semester, you guys will remember. Jeff, if I were to start to kind of mention all his degrees and accolades, we wouldn't have time for the Q&A night. So I'll just say this, super smart guy. Um, When he spoke last semester, I understood about 7% of what he said. Um, And so, but he is a professor of chemistry at OSU. and, And so great guy to have on hand to ask questions about science as it relates to faith, and so excited to have him here. Also, we got Scott Irwin over here, who's, eh, he's okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, Scott, I will say this honestly, okay, and I'm not going to, this is not going to happen very often, okay, I'm about to say something nice okay. about Scott, so, <laughs> so get out, record this, or whatever you want to do, okay, I uh, yeah, you record this guy. So Scott actually has been in ministry for like 15 years now, and for much of that, he has spent his time working with 50. Some no, I did not say 50. <laughs> 50. Um, More credibility. Yeah, most of that time he was just working with flannel graphs. That's how. He was. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, almost got through it. Dang it, I couldn't do it. Okay, I take that back. We'll re- we'll delete this. Okay. Um, for real, though, um, 15 years in ministry and a lot of that time has been spent in discipling and ministering to men, um, fathers and husbands, and, and working through with them what it means to be a man of God, to be a man after God's own heart. And so, um, truthfully, I can honestly say an expert in that and, and a guy that I look to a lot in kind of learning things about fatherhood and what it means to be a husband. So glad to have him here tonight. Uh, Obviously, kind of always here, but glad to have you up here tonight. Um, And then, last but not least, our favorite guest speaker always, Morgan Weiss. Um, Is there a C? So... Morgan is here, and and she's going to be talking about biblical womanhood. Morgan is has a couple things going for her. First of all, cousins. So yep. So that's the that's the first most first important cousins. thing you need. First cousins. Um, and Morgan Morgan does children's ministry at Sunnybrook Christian Church. Um, Morgan also is a mom of a teenager. Quan is fourteen now. Yeah, going to be fifteen in a month. Going to be fifteen in a month. So. So it's kind of crazy, but I'm going to be coming to you when my kids become teenagers for all my parenting advice on teen stuff. Morgan is a mom of a teenager, so she knows how that works. Um, so, but, but Morgan is also, for those of you guys who have been here and heard her, you know, is, is a woman who is wise beyond her years and has a lot to offer in the way of what it looks like to follow God and, and, and the, her perspective and belief of what the Bible says about womanhood and what that looks like. And so, um, also stoked to have her here. So, now now that I've talked a bunch, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hand it over to Ryan and let him kind of share. Like I said, we'll give him each five minutes as they're talking. If you have questions, write those down and, and you'll get a chance to ask those in just a little bit. So, Ryan, take it away, man. Okay. Um, so, I have this first question. Can truth be known? Um, now, before, like, just as a Q 
caveat. There, it, there are a number of disciplines, both scientific and uh, like in the, in the realm of philosophy, that deal with this question outside of religion, um, outside of Christianity. Um, can you even know truth? Are you, is everything just a figment of your imagination? Is Anthony the only one that really exists and the rest of us are just in his dream? Obviously. You know, <laughs> I don't have time to go into all that, fascinating though it is, so just trust me, I believe truth can be known. And I think most people here kind of agree with that. So the question then is, is our Bible kind of a good place for that? Is this something that is trustworthy? Um, when I was going to school at OSU, I had a number of professors that just, and, and they always happen to be tenured, because um, you can get away with a little bit more, but they love to take pot shots at their students that they knew were believers and just use their platform to mock the faith. And that's not all, but it just seems as though some really enjoyed kind of belittling it. And what they would do is they would attack the Bible. And, and with good reason. If you can undermine the Bible, you've, undermined, like you've brought down the whole faith. Um, because it's the Bible where we get the, the testimony of the resurrection, which is what Paul tells us that everything that we believe like, lives and dies on whether or not the resurrection actually took place. So they'll, they'll cut through the Bible and say it's got so and so many thousand errors, and, and it rattles people. And so, I think we need to be able to decide, yes, this is either trustworthy or not, and, uh, and therefore we can look to it as an authority. That's the second step I hope to be able to take. Um, we're going to do this as kind of an exercise of propositional logic. If this is true, and this is true, and this is true, therefore, this is our conclusion. So I have two premises. That's all I got. Let's see here. Premise number one. The Bible is historically reliable. Now, these are four reasons why I believe the Bible is reliable, historically. Um, I don't have time to defend them all. Just trust me, and if you want me to defend one or explain it further, use the question time to do that. Um, number one, we have to ask, do we have the right books? Your Bibles have 66 books. There were other books written than during this period. There are other books that other kind of branches of the Christian faith would include in their Bibles that we don't. And we have to ask the question, do we have the right books? And I would say, without, uh, without a doubt, we have the right books, because there's a very careful process of what's known as canonization. And the, the, to include a book in our Bible, they were asking questions like, is it authoritative? Does it have like a, thus saith the Lord, onus to it? Was it written by a prophet, or an apostle, or someone who was an eyewitness that was kind of a man or woman of God, um, speaking in that time period? Um, is it authentic? There were people that would write... Um, uh, by, like books under pseudonyms, and we, we frown upon that. Like, if Paul wrote Romans, we want to know that Paul wrote Romans, not a guy 200 years later saying that he's Paul writing Romans. So we, we want them to be authentic. And um, one final reason that we can believe that we have the right books is that the church has historically accepted it as true. If the first century church, if those who, were, who knew the apostles and knew Jesus accepted the writings of Paul and the, the, book, and the Gospels, if, if they accepted them as true and accurate testimony to what actually happened, who are we to, to contradict them 2,000 years later? Two, we have to ask, do, is my copy of Romans an accurate um, translation and kind of copy of what Paul wrote to the church in Rome? Because that's one accusation that we could make, is that our Bibles, they've become corrupt. I mean, you guys have heard that your Bibles are without error. It's not true of the Bibles in your hands. Your Bibles in your hands are copies of copies of copies of copies. They have errors in them. 
When we say that the Bible is inspired and without error, what we're talking about is that original piece of papyrus that Paul wrote Romans on. That that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that had no errors in terms of what it was um, teaching and, and matters of doctrine and faith. That's been copied for now 2,000 years. So is my copy of Romans accurate? You guys have played telephone. Like, it just gets messed up after a while. And I would say, when we think that it's messed up, it's because we do not understand the early Jewish scribal system and their ability to copy things meticulously, perfectly. And with one mistake, even a letter off, they'll throw it away and start over and copy things by hand. The printing press actually made the reliability of texts go down because there wasn't as much care in copying them. So um, there was a scribal system. We have, we have so many manuscripts from all over the place. We have more proof that our Bibles are what the original authors wrote than any other book in antiquity. And the closest book to it is Homer's Iliad. And here's a chart that I'll quickly describe the difference between our Bible and Homer's Iliad, which is the second most reliable text from antiquity. Homer's Iliad was written in 900 BC, so that's roughly uh, right after Solomon's reign, so you might have Isaiah coming on the scene shortly thereafter. That's kind of when Homer was writing the Iliad. The New Testament was written from about 40, BC, uh, 40 AD to 96 is when they wrote Revelation. Look at when the earliest copy came out of Homer's Iliad. 400 BC, 125, earliest copy of the New Testament. There's a 500-year gap between our oldest copy of the, of the Iliad and when it was originally written. Do you think the text could have been corrupted in 500 years? Of course it could have. Played telephone for 500 years. New Testament, 40 years between when it was written and our earliest copy that we have thus found. That was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Look at the number of copies of the Iliad. 643. That's okay. How many do we have of the New Testament? 24,000 and counting. We can't stop finding copies of the New Testament and fragments and pieces of these texts. If you look at the number of lines in the Iliad, it's a little bit less than that in the New Testament. 764 lines, we have no reason to believe that that's what was actually written. In the New Testament, only 40. And I would say because you look at the long ending of Mark, which you guys have talked about here at the table, you look at um, the, the account of the, the, uh, the adulterous woman in John 8, those are two major sections in your Bible that probably shouldn't be there. So you're already accounting for most of the 40 lines that shouldn't be there. 5% of the, if you go to Hastings and buy a copy of the Iliad, 5% of the text is likely not right. Your, your Bible has less than half of 1% has errors in it. And by the way, the errors are errors like Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus, or the comma is in the wrong place, or we spelled a city's name wrong. Those are the errors that are in your Bible. They are not matters of faith and of doctrine. Um, let me go back one. Next question we have to ask, well actually one last thing on whether or not our, um, we have the original documents. If we lost the entire Bible, we could rebuild the entire New Testament just from the sermons of the early church fathers. From the men who were preaching before the Council of Nicaea, that would be 323 AD, the men who were preaching quoted the New Testament so much we could take their sermons and rebuild the New Testament from scratch if we burned every Bible on the planet. We could bring the New Testament back. There's so much evidence that what we have is what was actually taught and what was actually written. Is, are they internally reliable? I'll tell you this. If you find an apparent contradiction in your Bible, that is not proof of an error. A difficult passage is not proof of an error. Some people will come to it and say, this doesn't line up with this. And I'll be like, but do they contradict? 
or is it just hard for you to understand? Those are two different things. So give the text the benefit of the doubt. When someone challenges the Bible, I actually like to remind them, because the Bible wasn't challenging you, you're challenging the Bible. Like, the onus is on you to give me a reason not to believe. You can't just say the text is hard to understand. We have to give things the benefit of the doubt. The Bible is internally reliable because of the um, eyewitness testimony. You read through the New Testament. It is eyewitness testimony after eyewitness testimony. These documents were written by people that were there and saw it, or were with people and saw it. Um, and then the, the, the Gospels were written within one generation of when Jesus died and was resurrected and then ascended. You try fabricating the story of Jesus within a generation when the people that were actually there and saw his body rotting in the grave are around to call you a liar and see if your document gets circulated as truth. You can't do that unless they can't produce the body. So the, the Gospels were written close enough to the events to actually be um, reliable. Are, is the New Testament externally verified? Um, the early church fathers, as well as a number of non-Christian historians, support the fact that what the New Testament says is true, or the fact that we actually have the correct documents. And when it comes to archaeological support, every time someone digs up a city, it just affirms the Bible more. When someone wants to say, oh, I can't find AI, you know they found that like, what, 30, 40 years ago? For, for hundreds of years as the Germans, believe me, I, I love Germany as much as anybody, but they did so much to dismantle the faith in terms of attacking the Bible. They said, we can't find these cities in the Old Testament. And then we just start sending people over there to dig and they keep finding them. The Bible, like, archaeology does nothing but support the Bible. And if it doesn't now, give it time. Because all it's done is prove that eventually it will. So, uh, if those four things are true, then I think we can logically conclude that the Bible is historically reliable. Premise two, and we can do this really quick, is the Bible divine testimony? If it's, if it's historically reliable, we need to ask, is it the testimony, is it the revelation of someone or something that is divine? And we can go through this really quickly. Does it have a coherent witness? 66 books, two testaments, 40 authors, 1,500 years of writing, three languages written in Asia, Europe, and Africa, all across the socioeconomic spectrum, written across 40 generations of men and women. And it just tends to agree with itself. It's amazing how unified the Bible is as a document that took a, 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 a millennium and a half to write in multiple languages on multiple continents. It's incredible. That just tells me that there must be some divine spirit behind kind of making sure this works. Historical Jesus. If you want to tell me that this is not the testimony of a divine being, the revelation of himself, you've got to deal with why did Jesus say the things about him that he did? And what do you do with his miracles? And then the ultimate kicker of the Christian faith. The world has no answer for what happened on Easter Sunday. If you cannot prove to me that the resurrection didn't happen, as it's testified to in the four Gospels, and as it's testified to most powerfully in 1 Corinthians 15, if you cannot refute the fact that the resurrection took place, you cannot refute Christianity, and therefore you'd have a very hard time refuting the Scriptures. Prophecies fulfilled. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus himself fulfilled. There's thousands of prophecies that were fulfilled in other ways. Jesus affirms the prophecies of the Old Testament, the, the early writers, the Gospels, and the, 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 the epistles, Paul, all these guys, they affirm the prophecies taking place. Um, 
there just must be some divine being behind here. And then what about the church? The fact that 12 morons took off and conquered the known world with a simple message like, my God is dead and that's a good thing, just tells me that the, that the, that the faith had some divine power behind it. And so for a number of reasons, I can say, yes, this Bible gives me a very clear picture of a divine super being revealing himself to humanity. And I believe that it's also historically reliable. So if those two things are true, if premise one, the Bible's historically reliable, is true, and premise two, that it is the divine testimony or revelation, my conclusion is, therefore, the Bible is true, and more importantly, or as importantly, bears authority on our lives. There are true history books out there that have no authority on my life, but if it's true, then it's true, and then if it's written by a divine agent, it now has authority over us. So, I said lots of things, and you can ask me to verify it in a bit, but I'm sure I've gone past my time. So, we'll move on to the next Sweet. guy. Thanks, ma'am. I got a couple texts on that, so we'll get some more in just a little bit. Oh, and then we'll yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have Jeff come up here real quick for science stuff. Okay, well, um, 2006, I gave a lecture at an American Physics Society meeting where you had 12 minutes only. I was to describe to all of these people my thoughts on calculating configurational entropy changes using magnetic resonance. Right now, right now, I am more scared than I was then. I've never done anything involving my mouth moving in five minutes, so... I will do my very best. Um, okay, well, um, it's good to see many of you again. Uh, I also was really disappointed to learn that Drew only appreciated 7% of what I had to say last night. I appreciated all of it. I yeah, so, so I, I I've clearly got to change my tactics here uh, for round two. So the question we have is, can the Christian faith be trusted in matters of science? And, and again, in the short amount of time, many of you guys know me. Uh, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not somebody who is trying to connect all the seemingly incongruous science, skepticism, humanism, secularism. You know, I'm just not one of those kind of people. Uh, I'm a person who believes God wrote two books. Ryan's introduced us to the first one. Uh, the second book that God wrote is everything around us, nature, the cosmos, the physical world with which we interact. And as a scientist, that's what I enjoy studying, albeit my field at a slightly smaller length scale than, say, the person that I hope gets to come and speak to you in a month or two, uh, Mike Strauss, he studies things at a much larger length scale, i.e. the cosmos. So uh, let me just, let's see here, I assume I go this way this way. Perfect. Um, so, in terms of trusting the Bible in manners, matters of science, or can the Christian faith be trusted, uh, I just pull a few scriptures for motivation. And again, I've probably already gone one minute, so, um, wow, just lots of pressure. This is just, my mind is swimming. <laughs> Absolutely swimming. Uh, I gave Ryan these slides and I wrote stuff on paper, then I put stuff on my phone. There's no way I can do this in five minutes. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, everybody knows that. I tend to think about science in two ways. Origin science and operational science. So operational science is where most scientists, you know, 
live and work. Origin science is, okay, you know, how did it all start? Whether you're talking about this, the first book God wrote, the cosmos, our physical world, or life, or humanity. All those things had a beginning. So, um, again, I'll, I'm going to borrow Ryan's line. You're just going to have to trust me. Um, and, and please send some questions. But in terms of the beginning, everything that modern science knows, going all the way from the largest length scales, creation of the galaxy, <coughs> if it was a creation, to the beginning of life, all of these things are in agreement with these three verses. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. God created man in his own image, i.e., for all of these topics, there was a beginning. And, and science can really tell us about that. This word entropy that I used earlier, I wasn't trying to impress you. That's one of these fundamental laws. You guys have, uh, have, have probably heard about it in many different classes. It gets taught incorrectly so many times it will make you want to throw up. But for our purposes, we can consider entropy as a measure of was there a beginning or has creation, uh, let me not use that word, uh, our world existed forever, infinitely long. And so we know from all types of experiments, uh, not just the things that you might think about, that uh, there had to be a beginning. There was a time zero. Time, God created time. God created everything that is in space. God created space and time. God transcends all of those. And so... Um, so much evidence. General relativity predicted this beginning. It's been observed now by seeing what light does. Okay, I've told you guys about uh, some of those things before. Um, the fact that all stars and energy in the universe are still relatively young tells us that uh, entropy is still increasing, this fundamental third law. Equilibrium has not been reached. There was a beginning. Uh, you know, then there's this whole business about, you know, God created. Uh, the universe was formed at God's command. God designed. Uh, I mentioned it to you guys last time. That, you know, when we look at the most basic elements of matter and how it forms and why it forms. In other words, why doesn't it all just, you know, fly apart? Well, these four fundamental forces have values that are just right. Gravity is strong enough, but not too strong. The strong nuclear force is strong enough, but not too strong. The weak nuclear force is just right. And so uh, some of you guys that uh, I, I pulled these things from two one-hour presentations I have on this topic um, know that... Golly. Okay, there we go. Um, okay, so... Probably don't want to do that. Uh, one more. There we go. It's just going slow. All right. So we tend to think about things as starting at a beginning. Um, how did stars form? Why did they form? The, the, the elements that were present at the beginning had to hone in on all of these correct physical constants in basically... 10 to the minus 40th second, more or less. Things had to be just right, or elements would not form. Uh, and so, you know, again, 
this is not my direct research area, but over the years I found all of these values that when you start thinking about these fundamental constants and um, uh, the time at which things had to happen, distances, uh, rates of expansion, rates of energy transfer, you can take all these variables and using the best that science has to offer, you come up with this ridiculous number for if, as the humanist, secularist, scient scientist, not scientist, scientism people tell us, if all of those things just evolved randomly and we happen to be just one place out of an infinitely, infinitely large place that has reached equilibrium and been here forever and things happen just right, that number is a, is a preposterous number. It is mathematically, using the tools of science, impossible number. 1 over 10 to the minus 320 or something like that. Sorry, 1 over 10 to the 320 or 10 to the minus 320. Statistically, it is completely irrational as a scientist to say it could have happened that way. Okay, so um, there is a beginning. Now let's go to the other end. Again, there's lots of things we could fill in, but another example is about life itself. Okay, so, uh, and interestingly enough, when you look at the people, say, on this side of the development of science, the ones who had the biggest impact, right, your Einstein, your Galileo, Copernicus, um, Paul Dirac, Erwin um, Schrodinger, all of these guys, they all believed in the God of the Christian faith. I'm not going to tell you they were all believers in terms of living the Christian life, but they all believed in the God of the Christian faith. Um, so, as do many people who practice science. So on the life end, let me close by using that as an example. Um, it's easier to talk about it than just to show slides, I think. You know, every day, as, as Drew said earlier, popular culture, the press, maybe most of your professors, particularly if you're in the biological world, are telling you that biology proves that you evolved to where you are now. Uh, but evolutionary biology is a greater leap of faith than anything that the Bible has to say. I do not have time to prove it to you, but there are two very key important things that the evolutionary biologist cannot address. We go back to the beginning again. Evolution and operational science inferred from some discrete data points along the way about changes in species that are relatively small changes compared to the diversity of all species that exist, we go to the beginning, the origin. It has been proved time and time again, life requires life at the beginning. Um, the probability that these elements, which by the way, in order for them to form, right, in order for there to be the carbon required for life and the oxygen, we're already at 1 over 10 to the 310 using the rules of science that the skeptics quote as disproving our faith. So we're already in this regime where it's impossible. Now, in that regime, those elements somehow formed in the primordial ooze with the right amount of energy defying the third law, second law of thermodynamics, entropy is maximized, to create a cell that somehow did its thing to create you. It's called abiogenesis. There is absolutely no proof. It's never been proved. Louis Pasteur went to his grave saying this is the most ridiculous idea you ever heard. Abiogenesis, life starting from nothing. It is not consistent with any known fact in science. Okay? The other is the complexity of the molecules that make you up, and yet their narrow distribution 
of characteristics. Again, using science, science has proven that entropy is a fundamental law. Entropy does not favor your DNA existing the way that it exists. Entropy does not favor all the naturally occurring amino acids which constitute every living being having the structure that they have. Some of you guys have heard me talk about chirality before. So, um, because I know I've already gone five minutes, I mean, it just has to be, um, we could go through time and time again and cite examples from science that um, are consistent with everything that we take from the Bible. Now I'll tell you my own personal one. My personal hang-up that I cannot explain for you is time as a variable is time as an absolute value. You know, many of you have asked over the years, you know, what about this, you know, age of the universe, 15 billion years? Well, that's not consistent with the Bible. I do not have an answer for that. I simply don't. But what I do know is if I believe what science tells me that at large length scales and high energies, which is our cosmos, that time is not a constant or meaningful parameter to even discuss on its own, then I'm not going to get too hung up about, you know, an exact value that I've calculated, you know, based on some experiment. Um, you know, a fundamental tenet of science is, this kind of goes back to what Drew was saying earlier, you know, somebody is here because, as Descartes says, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I think, therefore I am. Right? You've proven yourself by existing, but science has proven time and time again that absolute truth cannot be derived from science. You get a knowledgeable outcome based on the way that you did some experiment. You generated an observable, you built a model, you tried to figure out what was going on. Um, you know, those of you that, uh, I, I always mention this because you know, guilty as charged, I, I do like certain things about the Big Bang Theory on TV very much. Some things I despise. But you know that Sheldon worships uh, Richard Feynman, the ground that Richard Feynman works on, uh, walks on. You know, Richard Feynman, who was at uh, Caltech. You know, they're always talking about, oh, Feynman would do this, Feynman would do that. Uh, on my bucket list, I'm working through all three volumes of Feynman's lectures on physics. At the very beginning, Feynman says, science cannot tell you truth. We are constantly just building approximate models to try to understand what's going on. And then we move on to the next step. So as a person who makes a living doing science, I never, and, and many people, more talented, way smarter, more famous than I'll ever be, share the same idea. I never believe science gives me absolute truth for answering the most fundamental questions. Why am I here? Why do I have this yearning inside that I know from the beginning you know, this 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 angst about right and wrong. You know, science has its place. Uh, in my opinion, the place of science is not for discerning absolute truth. Thank you very much. So great, so great. All right, Scott, you want to take over yours? Yep. Do we have time? He hits a few slides. Did. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's good stuff. It is. I mean, can you guys, speed readers? Wait, I know that guy. Wait, I know that guy. Okay. 
So I've, I, I, I really am going to try and do this in about five, five and a half minutes. I'm going to set my watch. Um, here is why I believe that we can trust the Bible based on everything that they've just said. This is why I believe we can trust the Bible to find out about manhood and womanhood, about, about who we are as men and who we are as women and what, what that means for us. Um, basically, I want to get to this verse. It's already been mentioned, but Jesus quoted this verse in Mark 10.6. The reason we can trust this is because Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he did it. And so because he died, was buried, rose again, everything he said and everything he did really matters. And, and he quotes this verse as a, as a foundational, fundamental understanding of our identity. And so when we go back to Genesis 1.27, that... It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We learn several things from this verse. One, we learn that we were made in God's image. Therefore, we, we bear the image of God. Um, and so, wherever we go, there's something about us that bears his image. Now, it, it also says that male and female were created in his image. And so, here's what, here's what we also know. God is not male or female. He's referenced his father often in the Bible. He's referenced as he, um, but, but God is not he or she. God is not male or female, per se. Because if, you, if, you've, if, if you're in college now and you haven't figured out quite yet that, that men and women are different, we need to talk. Um, because men and women are different. And so how can, how can God be one or the other if, if both bear his image? And so that's, that's, that's interesting. So... Here's what, here's what we know. The Bible, it, not only does the Bible show us, um, as, as men and women act, show us what manhood and womanhood is, but as God acts throughout the Bible, this is what I want you to see, as God acts throughout the Bible, um, God dis- displays um, manhood and, and womanhood. And both um, Morgan and I are going to give you examples of, of that, and specifically how Jesus exemplifies both manhood and womanhood, which is kind of interesting to think about. She'll deal with the womanhood part. Um, so here's where I want to start. Uh, I've got, I've got two, two, two texts that, that I want to go to. First is in Exodus chapter 2. And uh, this, is, this is a great story where the Israelites had, had, had grown, and they were so big, and they were slaves in, in Egypt. And, and God, at the end of chapter 2, says, God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. So he heard, heard their need, he remembered his covenant, and he looked into their problem. And then all of chapter 3 is him moving with action to, to make an impact, to rescue. In fact, verse 8 says, it says I, he says, I have come down to, the, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypts and to take them to a better land. So here's what we learn from that. This, this is an interesting, this, this, is, this speaks to a fundamental understanding, I think, of, of manhood is that, that um, God, God is exemplifying, and therefore we, when we do this, we, we reveal God, we exemplify and, and, and bear His image. When we hear the needs of others, when we remember what's important, when we look into their, their issues, their problems, are, are willing to get messy, and when we move with action to make an impact, to make a difference. And there's something about that. And that's not just a man and a woman thing, or just a man thing. Women can do that too. But there is something about that that for men 
this really, there's something rises up inside of us. The, the next example is Philippians 2. This is Jesus. This is Paul's description of what Jesus did when he decided to, um, to move out of the, to leave the mansion in heaven and move into the ghetto with us, uh, is in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, what he's saying is, even though Jesus was equally God, he didn't think that was worth just holding on to and staying in heaven. He was willing to let go of that. He was willing to come down. He was willing to um, empty himself, take the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human form, humble himself, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, so Jesus was willing to, he, he, he looked in, he heard our need, he looked into our problem, he remembered, right? He remembered his, his love for us, he remembered these things, and he left heaven, moved in with us, rest to, camp, to come and rescue us. Like, he's the ultimate hero. Like, when, when, guys, when we hear stories, wow, five minutes up, when we hear stories <laughs> of, of, of men who, who see a need and who remember what's, what's important and remember the, the gifts that, that they have and move with action to rescue, to make a difference, to impact, no matter what the... When we hear those stories, we think, yes. Now, when we hear the opposite of those stories, when we hear, we hear a guy that goes, eh, eh, when they shy away from someone's hurting, someone's calling for help, and they, they run away, and they just decide to just live for themselves, and, and they don't sacrifice, they don't live sacrificially for, for anybody else. When we hear those stories, or when we experience those stories, we, nothing in us says, yes. Everything in us says, ew, like, yuck. And because... I believe, as men, there's a core fear that we have, and that is to, to, to make an impact, to, to be significant, to make a difference. And so um, this speaks to, I believe, what it means to be a man and what the Bible seems to teach. And so there is this, this definition I've come recently to really appreciate, and this is kind of a good summary of what the Bible describes what it means to be a man, that real men reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. They don't just live for the here and now. They invest for people's eternity. And so, I mean, each of these, these four things are things that all of us can grow in and all of us are growing. But, but this seems to be a biblical pr perspective and picture of what it means to be man. Next. All right, Morgan. Hop up here. Take it away. <laughs> okay, I appreciate all that. I don't have time to be funny. I don't have time to tell stories. So this is going to be really interesting and different. But, okay, we're just going to cut to the chase so we can be done in five minutes. That verse that um, Scott showed you about male and female, he created them. The word for female is nekabah, which is N-E-Q-E-B-A-H. And that word actually literally means to be bored through um, or punctured. So less literally, it refers to the idea of something that's been open and can now be entered. That's what, how woman is defined, female identity is defined. And so I believe one of our core like desires as women is to be open and to be nourishing, and that's how God's called us to be. But that can be kind of a confusing concept, so I want to talk about what's the opposite of that. 
Because I think the opposite of that is what causes us to be closed and not live as um, fully alive people, as Dr. Larry Crabb would say, and that's who teaches us about this. So, um, basically, um, our core fear, if we are designed to be open, um, and that is a risky business, okay? If we are designed to be open, then our core fear is an invitation with no response. So invisibility is a woman's core fear. And so it'd be this idea of you, have, you offer an invitation and the person does not respond to you. And that is a risky thing, but just like um, Scott was talking about how God is neither man nor woman, we see this displayed in the life of Jesus, which is why when we say as Christian women that we want Christ formed in us, this is a fear that we have to actually face head on because Christ is always open. He's never closed with anyone. Um, some of the scriptures that I have for that is, um, I'm not using, well, Okay, left, Vincent left. Okay, other left. Oops. Oops, oopsie. You tell me where you want to be. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so. They want to be positive. Yeah, Pass that one. Pass that one. Sweet. Oh, this is something that Dr. Larry Crabb says, and I think it's something that you should remember. If you're a girl, just go ahead and write it down and put it on your mirror. Um, it says, don't live to avoid what you most fear or live to gain what you most want. I want to be like Jesus, which we, that's where we kind of got to this idea, like how that's kind of silly because he was a man here on earth. So how could I possibly like Jesus? Well, he's also God, and so he does personify what I want to be. And here are some things that we know about him that kind of address our core fear of invisibility and I, I believe can strengthen us and inspire us to live as open women. Um, he says, what you, is your first one? Go to the next one. I'm going to make sure I do the same one. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's an invitation. Okay, and Matthew eleven twenty eight. The next one I think is more interesting. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. He says, "How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing." How interesting. He was open, and the invitation was not received. Right? Core terror, invisibility, and it happened, and yet he remains open. And then I think this one's really interesting too. In Isaiah fifty three two, he says this. He it says this. He had no beauty that we should desire him. And I think that's part that goes into this idea of you have no response. What if no one desires you? Um, I want to give you just a few examples just to see if you guys can relate um, in a different way. Girls, I guess, if you can relate in a different way. Here's an example of what I mean by our core terror, okay? So if you really desire to be open, here is kind of a risk that you're going to be taking. And so it's a, it really is a, a really serious risk, okay? And here's, here's the risk that you might take. A man may refuse to enter an opened heart of a beautifully feminine woman. With the blindness that afflicts so many men, he may see no beauty in her soul that entices him to a lifelong commitment. That could actually happen. I might never be married. That does not mean that I am not a deeply feminine woman. I'm just figuring this out, okay? <laughs> After talking to Sharon for a long time and her pointing me to scripture and to this awesome book. So... Um, but that is kind of a fear you're going to have to face head on. And the peace that comes with that is that I believe that God, I, I feel so content in who God created me to be and that he desires me and that he loves me, that I'm okay. I'm okay to still remain open. 
And um, even if that means that a man is an idiot and can't, can't figure it out. Okay, so that's part of it. So that's the first one. All right, number two. There's my funny. See? Sneak it in there. Okay, so I get that from Drew. He's a funny cousin. Um, here's the next one, and I don't, you guys aren't married yet, but you might be someday. So here's this one. A husband already committed by sacred vows may sinfully turn away from an open and nourishing wife finding a more easily enjoyed satisfaction in career, success, ministry achievements, pornographic pleasures, or even spiritual disciplines. That's a risk you have to take if you're going to remain open as a woman, even as a wife. Um, a Christian man who wants to be a good dad, I don't know if any of you guys have, ha- have good dads that, have ever, um, that you've ever been open to that have not responded. Um, a Christian man who wants to be a good dad may not recognize his lack of meaningful involvement with his daughter. Touching her soul with the masculine power of a father's love may seem to him intimidating, awkward, and confusing. Watching television is more relaxing. His daughter gets the message. She has no beauty worth fighting for. That is a fear. That's invisibility. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Friends. Okay, everyone in here has friends. Friends, both men and women, may be warmly... I have felt this, guys. I've been afraid of this may be warmly attracted to the company of a deeply godly woman without it ever occurring to them to explore her depths. She gets the message. She has an engaging personality and is usefully talented and nothing more. There is no compelling beauty visible to others that lies within her waiting to be discovered and celebrated. But then you read Isaiah 53, right? And Isaiah 53 says, He had no beauty that we should desire him. So is that actually the worst thing that could happen in the world? Well, not if I get Jesus, not if I get to be formed like Jesus, and I want Jesus formed in me. I want that kind of Christ formed in me. And so if I really am open to him, then these are risks that I'm willing to take. And here's the cool thing, is that you will start, as you start to let go and overcome these fears and really try to remain open to what God has for you, you will find so much freedom in that. You'll be able to find rest in that because You'll go to bed at night and you won't be thinking, oh my goodness, how did this person respond or not respond to me or I'm so sad or blah, blah, blah. You'll be, think- you'll be thinking, was I open? And if I was not open in every conversation and everything I did, then I need to repent of that and I need to go to that person and I need to remain open. Because that is, G- that is cr- what Christ formed in me looks like. And if you, if you were open and they didn't respond, guess what? You rest. You go to sleep and you rest because you are obedient to what God has called you to do. And so I have found that to be really helpful. And um, I wasn't going to do any illustrations, but one just practical way that even that was helpful for me last week was it was Valentine's Day. And we, Sharon, who, she's an, this awesome godly woman who's very, who is awesome. I don't, okay, that's it. She's awesome. And I, anyways, okay. Uh, she's, she's amazing. And she throws this Valentine's uh, banquet for nourishing healthy marriages. And she tells me she thinks I should go. And I tell her she's stupid. That's what I told her in her (laughs) office. I think that's ridiculous. And she said, no, really. Um, I really think you could go. You should go because just because you're not married does not mean you can't nourish healthy marriages and be a a person that that wants to celebrate those. And that's true. That's an area that I felt like I feel left out in. Like I feel like I'm not allowed to celebrate marriage because I'm not in one sometimes. And, um, and that's a lie. And so I went and I said, I'd feel more comfortable if you gave me a job. <laughs> and she said, okay. So she let me take pictures. And so I thought, okay, this could be really awkward. This might be really hard. And I started praying about it. And I said, Lord, I just want to be open. That's what I want to be. 
And I went in and I took all these pictures of all these people and it was wonderful. And I think I was the only single person in there. Um, but it was awesome. And at the end of it all, this guy is doing this kind of cool, kind of corny piano thing. And, um, and he sings a song and he says, this is one of my favorite songs. And it's, <laughs> and he has a really good voice. And it's the song, when God made me, he must've been thinking about you. And I started to feel kind of sad because I thought, oh, he thought about no one when he created it. <laughs> that is the thought that went through my mind. Okay. And then, and then, this is the coolest thing. I can't even describe it. I'm sitting in the back listening to this, and I'm just feeling pretty content. And then he goes and sings that song, and I'm like, okay, well. And then I realized, like, if, he, if, if there is no one that I end up with, like, I belong to him. You know? And he created me. And it is... Like, I would much rather be created for his glory than for a man's glory anyways, you know? And so it was just really comforting to me, and it, it just helps me. So I hope it helps you. By the way, I thought that was the dumbest line of the whole There you go. Because, and here's why, because it's a goofy, like God was thinking about a person, and he created another person. Right, right. And he right, so, right. Like, that person is... Somehow, the sole reason this other person exists, that's garbage. Anyway. Yeah! Except for, except for, we know that God was thinking of me being your ministry buddy. So, uh, <laughs> so. Yes. Got you some sort of like a. Like a. It's got to be like a Ministry Bros version or something like that. Something, uh-huh. something. Okay, so. All right. Here's what we're, it doesn't matter. Uh, okay, so here's what I want to give you. Like, I want to give you a couple minutes to grab some coffee while these guys make their way up here. And then I'm going to let you, we're going to open it up and let you ask some questions of them real quick. So, there's hot chocolate minutes. too. There's hot chocolate in the kitchen. I did. I want hot chocolate. Oh. Go that way. I'm getting it cut. I'm getting it cut this way. I'm going to get it cut. I'm just gonna shoot me on the real man forms back up there. I can tell you. Reject passivity, okay? Accept responsibility, okay? Lead courageously. And invest eternally. Eternally. Awesome. Thank you. I was like, oh, I gave an iPad to Elise. What was I doing? Paul would have just folded.
She told me it's all good. I know it's all good. That was a sermon. That was good. I thought you tied that up beautifully. If you would have stopped at five minutes, it would have been altogether confusing. But the way you ended it, I thought, man, that's good. I both went about 12 minutes. You went like 7 or 8. Morgan was tired. So he might have been 10. So what have you learned? What have you learned? Can I also make an announcement about my Just draw yes. nine squares and let it be a subliminal message. Yeah, I love it. You can't do it. Tell everyone it's a QR code. Yeah. QR code. <laughs> I sent you two questions. I saw that. Okay. How many questions do you I got four or five. No. I got four or five. Yeah. I didn't get any about this either. So, yeah. So I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna open it first, and then uh, and then I'll and then I'll come in with some of these. So What? Go for it. Make sure you point out the illustration. You do yours first and then I'll let you do it. I'll be happy to. Alright, hey. Listen up while you're getting your stuff. I'm going to go ahead and make a quick announcement. What is that? Um, I'm going to make a quick announcement. There is a nine square tournament. Nine square in the air tournament. It's it's sports ball. Don't worry about it. Um, so 
Night Square Tournament, February 27th. You can put a team together for how much? How much does it cost to put a team together, Kelsey? Uh, $50 for a five-person team. $50 for a five-person so team. And it's and you're raising money for the high school Mexico trip. All right, great. All right, next thing, real quick, before we jump in, I want to introduce you guys to a friend of mine named Stephen Oliver. Woo! A couple things. Uh, Steven is actually an alumni of the table, actually. He was actually one of, in our first year, kind of, he was a table group leader for us, and he's been a host for table groups. He actually works, though, for another campus ministry now in town called Lightbearers. And, uh, and they've got kind of something exciting that is taking place next year that I want to let him kind of share with you real quick. So, Yeah, guys, uh, first of all, I feel like a really disappointing halftime show like it's like revival it's like revival night here at the table this is awesome um, no I'm with light bears light bears exist to do two things um, really to do one thing and that's fulfill the great commission to go and to make disciples so um, we do that locally by discipling college students um, and we also do that internationally by funding missionaries who plant churches in northern Africa and Central Asia basically places where the gospel is suppressed um, where uh, people don't have access to the gospel, where they may have never even heard about Jesus. Um, so we fund missionaries that go there and plant churches and start uh, and start spreading the gospel in those communities. The way we do that, um, you may have a flyer. So I didn't bring enough for everybody. This is a great turnout. Didn't plan ahead. But um, there's someone next to you, there's a flyer. We build apartment complexes. Um, we're, we're a really, really new ministry. We, the only apartment complex we own is in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> big, big Razorback fan in the yeah. front row. Um, uh, we, Stillwater is the second campus we've ever built a property. So this is a growing ministry. We're really excited about it. Um, so we, we lease to college students. We are completely non-profit. Um, all the profit from your rent goes to fund missions. So if, if you haven't decided where you're living at next year um, and you are interested in doing this and just being a part of something bigger than making making some landlord rich, uh, if you are want to be a part of this, um, let me know. My, my contact info is on the back of that card. I'm going to stick around uh, till the end of the table, so come grab me. I'll probably be over somewhere in this area to do a quick Q&A session if anyone has any. We're actually pretty cheap. Again, nonprofit. That's a perk. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions you probably have about that. So come grab me, uh, Scott. Will you do me a favor? Will yep. you write my phone number up there, uh, distinctly different from Drew's, mm -hmm. so I don't get tough theology questions? <laughs> <laughs> you know all my answers. Um, my number is nine one eight seven seven nine nine zero and then 007. Yeah. Nine double seven. Stephen, what's the name of your organization again? Uh, it's called Light Bears. Who, who in here had not heard of Light Bears before right now? Okay, a lot of people. That's awesome. Um, we're, we're working on getting the word out. So um, if you are somewhat interested, do me a favor. Just go ahead and text me right now and just say, my name's so-and-so, I'm interested. That doesn't mean like, hey, sign me up. It just means, hey, I'd like more information, and I can text back and forth any questions you have. I kind of like the whole questionnaire format. So um, please reach out. We're a growing ministry. We've got 80 beds to fill. Um, and, uh, I mean, we need, we need students like you who are passionate about missions and about spreading the gospel, uh, in Africa and Asia. So, 
Um, oh, lastly, they're not apartments. They're actually townhomes. So no one lives above or below you. They're actually pretty cool. So, um, but I can share that. I can share more with you whenever uh, whenever you let me know you're interested. But anyway, thank you. Back back to the show. Boy. All right, so I've got a few questions that have been kind of texted in, and, and we'll probably try to get to those if we can. But and, yeah, but so so even if you texted them in, if you really want to make sure that your question is answered, maybe just go ahead and raise your hand. Um, but but we'll see if we can get to those in a little bit. But right now, what I want to do is actually just open it up. So if you've got questions for any of these four people up here, go ahead and, and raise your hand. And we'll get to you here. While you guys are thinking, I'll stimulate your imagination. Stephen, I just wanted to suggest you might get a little more name recognition if you change it to photons for Jesus. <laughs> okay, now the creative juices are flowing. Here we go. She had a question. Does somebody have them? Yep. Morgan, could you elaborate a little more on what being open consists? Yes. Okay. I... Well, I can use it. I do have mine. But being open, I think the main thing when I'm talking about being open is being open to, one, anything God calls you to. Two, I I think that you're only open to things that glorify God and his purposes. So an open woman isn't just someone who does whatever anybody asks her to do. That obviously doesn't consist of a a godly woman. Um, And then... Dr. Larry Crabb, in his book, Fully Alive, he kind of dives into this idea. And he, the reason I like his book so much is because he really goes back to the original language in Scripture and kind of dissects what it means. And so um, that's where I get a lot of information. He actually gives a really good definition. And I'm going to grab it. Because he gives a – I think it helps when – you say, when you hear open, it can be confusing. But when you put it in, in, with the opposites, it kind of helps – so he would say it, it, it's kind of like this. Invitationally, like a woman operates invitationally, not controllingly, which is interesting because if you're controlling and demanding, that's actually our, our natural bent, and it's sinful, okay? But that's our bent, and we can only not be that way. I believe we can only, we can only act invitationally if, like, Christ is in us. I, don't, I think that it's going to be impossible to not act controlling and demandingly, or maybe that's just me, but, um, but for but for Christ to be in me. Um, openly, not guardedly. So a way that I would have been guarded at that uh, Valentine's thing would have just been to kind of shut out everyone um, or not talk to anyone or self-consumed with thoughts about myself. I think that's a guarded thing to do. Um, courageously, not defensively. So an open woman is courageous, not defensive. Um, and she's freely, not protectively. And that's probably the one I struggle with the most, is being free and not protective, because I want to guard, so I'm not hurt. Guard your heart. Not hurt by others. Yeah, guard your heart. Which, Which is also wise. It's the wellspring it, it of life. It is, it's wise. <laughs> it is, and, but, then it, but then there can be an extreme to that, that yeah. where, where you, you guard against okay. everything, including... Guarding against mm-hmm. being open to, to the things that God wants you to be open to. Mm-hmm. And he, he also says this, and I'm, I'm going to read this to you too, just because it's really good definition. He, he says, an authentically feminine woman is a woman so at rest in God's delight in her indestructible beauty 
So you find so much worth in Christ that it allows you to be open without that fear of rejection, if that makes sense. Because even if you lose everything, you don't lose him. You know what I'm saying? So, does that help? Okay. What's the name of the book? The book is called Fully Alive. My question is about masculinity, and it's also for more. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> when, when you said a large part of it being a man is rejecting passivity, what does that look like? Because in my mind, it jumps to things that I don't know, like, might not be what you're talking about, like. I should really go get in the gym more often. I don't know. Like, whatever it looks like. I think do better on homework. Or yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I think I think uh, you know when 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 a when a man remembers who God is, remembers what God has said. See, this is this is what Adam would be a perfect example mm-hmm. of what not to do. Yeah. Because God told Adam, listen, you are free to eat of any tree. Do not eat of that one. And then he, he gives him that command before Eve is created. So Eve is created. Who's supposed to give Eve that command? Adam. And Adam didn't do his job. Adam didn't remember what God said and, and didn't relay that message. Didn't right. So when when she goes to eat of this tree, he was passive. He didn't he didn't remember what was said and therefore now do remember what was important in order to do what was important. He didn't he didn't do that. He he was passive and he stood back and. And that's why Romans blames the fall on him, mm-hmm. not on her. Even though he goes to blame her, and then she goes to blame the snake, and then, and then we're already in this mess. So, so I think I think I think being passive is 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 when you you have this God-given right and ability to stand up for what's right or to do what's important because you know what's important, and you don't do anything. That's that's when you're being passive. So that can apply in a lot of situations, but that's a general overview. Anybody has a question? Oh, this is just kind of open-ended, but what would you say the best way to handle doubt is? Take that one. None of us have ever doubted anything, so I don't know how that is. Uh, Drew? What is that? Drew, yeah, Drew. Drew has lots of doubts. Doubt in what sense? Like, regarding what? Because I doubt that the Yankees are special. I really like the Red Sox. But, like, doubt what? Um, I don't know. Okay, I'm personally a Christian, but I know that I've struggled a lot of times, like, where it seems like my heart just, like, has that barrier um, and, like, lacks that understanding or lacks that, like, final, like, Okay, I'm going to give this, like, my all, and it seems like doubt, like, the devil has such a way with doubting, and, like, if you doubt, then you must not, like, be capable. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Um, I would say, well, there's a host of ways, of, of, with, like, in terms of how we deal with doubt. Um, doubt tells me that one, we are, that's just... One idiot in my life group calling over and over. Oh, yes, it's your phone. Yes. <laughs> my phone. Um, doubt is is really just a, a nicer way of saying I don't believe God. Like I, I'm not believing God on this one. I'm going to believe a lie. Um, and especially if you're talking about doubt in terms of like 
am I am I secure in my faith? Can I really live this Christian life? You know, these things that we typically have doubts about. You know, um, it, we're just saying I don't believe what God has said about this because in this in the scriptures He says like that that He is the genesis of not only salvation but of holiness and righteousness. And so um, I'm even going to be talking this weekend at Sunnybrook about why I read. Um, in, at the end of Matthew 6, where it says, do not be anxious, trust that God, he cares for the lilies of the field, and he, he clothes them in much more splendor than even Solomon himself, why would you worry about these things whenever God can provide them, and it says, therefore, do not be anxious, and, and the thing that I get to talk about is, like, I've read that 453,000 times, and it makes me anxious when I read that, <laughs> because I'm, I can get real anxious about things. And, and I've just come to this conclusion that I get anxious or I doubt because I'm refusing to believe what God said. Um, interesting fact. When did Satan fall from heaven? Like we assume it was pre-garden because now he's a snake slithering around playing games. But what does it say in Job? He strolls into the throne room of God to, to make a deal and then to accuse Jesus, or the, the Revelation 12 tells us that Satan fell from heaven at Jesus' crucifixion, and technically at the resurrection. At that point, he fell like, he fell like stars falling, and a third of the stars fell with him. He fell from heaven because he no longer has the ability to accuse. That's what he does. Pre, that's, that's why we doubt, because we still feel like he's accusing us. And that, in some sense, God can't handle whatever it is I'm dealing with, or I'm refusing to believe that he has justified me, and that he's in the process of sanctifying me, and that one day he will truly glorify me, and I will be free of all this sin. I'm not believing something of this process that is quite clearly testified to in the scriptures. Um, and it's always helpful for me to come back to, yes, Satan literally doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore in terms of accusing me before the Father. He's not allowed to do that. He can, he can deceive me in some sense, or he can do that, but he can't accuse me. Because Christ look, or God the Father looks at me and he sees Christ. And then he just like is working on me so that as I am 100% holy before God, he's working on me through sanctification so that I will kind of actually become holy. Um, and so doubt is really just in our head calling God a liar. And, and I say, get in the scriptures for him. And let him prove himself. Pray and beg him to prove himself. And not that doubts will always go away, but... They can weaken with time. So, I don't know if there's any more you want to add to that. There's lots, but I have another question, and I don't know who to direct this at, so go for it. Um, how do you go about praying for non-believers? So, like, what do you pray for, and what can you expect from God while you're praying for them? Um, so, like, you can pray like God, your will be done, but then, like, and Mark also say says like. Uh, if you believe that whatever you have asked for, you know, you can receive it, you can pray with expectation. So, how do we, like, I don't, I know that I'm not, I'm not asking this so I can have perfect prayers, but I, how I pray, I think, reflects what I believe about God. So, how do you balance those two strings? <laughs> well, he is preaching this weekend in, in, on the Lord's Prayer, so... <laughs> You can explain all that you've learned about that. I don't have time. No, don't do that. Don't explain all Okay, you. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I meant to say, you could tell her, you could address her question. That's what I meant to say. I'll start it, and then I'm assuming 
Do you have something to share? Sure. You you breezed past that. Well, I can pray your will be done, and then but what what should I pray for? Because he he wants you know whatever I pray. Like if I pray in faith, he's gonna you know. I think I really think like praying the Lord's will be done is not just a way of saying God do whatever you plan to do. I think it's another way of saying align my heart with your character. Align my heart with your name and with what it is that you're about, such that I start to pray for the things that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why the Lord's Prayer, which we're doing this weekend, starts with our Father in heaven. So, Father, there's this relational aspect. In heaven, there's this supreme being over all creation aspect. So it's familiarity and reverent fear. And then he says, hallowed be your name. It's not, I want your name to be hallowed. It's, make it hallowed in my mind. Let me revere who you are in your name that in, like, encompasses all of your character. And then it says, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I really think it's less about begging God to do what he's going to do already and more about, make me want those things. Make me want those things. And so, when it comes to an unbeliever, um, just depends on how reformed you are. It's going to be... I could pray, I think we, we have the ability to pray like ridiculous prayers begging for the salvation of, uh, of non-believers. And then I think we need to have the maturity to say, and when that doesn't take place, that's not because my prayers have been ineffective, it's because God has not chosen to do so for some reason. And in many ways God is this deep, deep fog and we're just on the outside of it looking at the effects of it, wondering at what's going on inside. And we have to have a, like a, a profound humility in things like that. And then I would say, pray brazen prayers. Beg Him for the salvation of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, the only thing I would add is really good. The only thing I would add is Jesus' teaching about prayer was, was there is um, going with persistence to God and, and being bold to God. And, and when you read Jesus, His teaching about prayer and the way he prayed and the examples he gave and the, the, you know it's 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 the persistent widow it's the the guy that, that goes to his neighbor at midnight and wants food because someone's come to visit him and and you see Jesus saying listen you can go with boldness to God when, when you go with boldness to God you're showing God that you truly believe he's the one that can handle this just like the widow the persistent widow who she went to the judge she goes to the judge because the judge is the only one that can do it and even though he was a wicked judge he gave in because he's persist- she was persistent. How much more would God, who's not wicked, give in when you show him that kind of reverence and that kind of, when you beg him for what you believe you want? And as you align your heart with what God wants, then you pray with boldness and persistence. I might just throw one thing in there, Kelsey, that I know in my own life I've seen. That prayer needs to include, I believe, a component that says, God, please use me. Please burden me to, to act in a way you know, that glorifies you. Mm-hmm. Give me the boldness to seek an encounter. You know, praying you know, from a different zip code, we think, okay, well, you know, that's one thing. But I know for me, when I've I, you know, just, God, give me an opportunity to be used for you in this person's life. It will scare you to death sometimes. What doors get opened? And I'm not trying to say that I'm super successful at this. It's it's a it's an area that I feel very deficient about, integrated over time. But 
but I think it has to include that component. We got one over here. So this, this is uh, uh, for Dr. White. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, it was very scientifically related. So, uh, you know, our, your typical geology, freshman geology class will say, you know, we have carbon dating, we have certain methods of dating and procedures that tell us that the Earth is billions of years old. About but, seven is what most people agree. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, if you... Uh, <laughs> what? No, you're good. No. This is Chloe but, being Chloe. No. Uh, well, thanks for interrupting, Chloe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so, but if you, I mean, historically, or historically speaking, you were traditionally in your typical, I guess, evangelical family, you would think that the earth is 10,000 years old. Right. I mean, how do we how do we amend that gap if we have science saying something is a billion years old, but we have we have uh, a family, you know, saying or your family and your pastor and the church saying, oh, the Earth is only ten thousand years old. Um, what? Yeah, this is um, well. You notice how I tried to dodge this question earlier. Right? <laughs> Remember my time qualifier at the end of my spiel. Um, Small point of correction, carbon dating can't answer such a question because, you know, all the isotope decays too quickly. You have to go to very heavy elements. <laughs> and, and granted, there's a larger uncertainty, but, okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a real answer for that. You know, you know that same family is not going to believe in a, in a big bang form of creation, which actually I personally don't have a problem with. Because it, it it is in every way consistent with the biblical. Uh, but you know, time is a sticky wicket. I, I, I can't I can't defend that. If I could, I, mean, I, yeah. I got nothing to say about isotopes. Those the gloves. No, if I were saying if I were saying kind of isotoner, two possibilities kind of in that in that realm, and one is. We get our dating, like when that, that evangelical family that gives you your dating for the, the earth based to, to 6,000 B.C. or 10,000 B.C., depending on how they do it, is based a lot out of the genealogies that we see in Scripture, right? And so so there's um, a couple things that, that could be going on. One is we don't, we don't know if they're accounting for in their genealogies the exact kind of time that we might be using in those. We don't know if... There are oftentimes, we know, like in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he intentionally leaves gaps in there. He leaves generations out because he wants to get, first he wants to get to this perfect component of 14, um, 3 is 14, but also he wants to only hit the key points. And so, so I don't know if our genealogies in, say, Genesis give us an exact picture of what the day is. There could be large gaps left out, there could be those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and we don't know... Well, I won't get into this part, but here's, here's the other thing is, is there does seem to be, and I don't know how this works exactly, but when God makes Adam, it's, it's what people call a mature earth theory, but when God makes Adam, he doesn't make him a baby, he makes him a, I don't know what, 30 year old man or something like that. And I believe that God didn't make like a seed, he made a tree that looked really old already, like if you were to cut it down and count all the rings, it would look like it were a 
hundred-year-old tree, right? And so there's some who kind of theorize that perhaps, like the that he made a mature earth that already like has the appearance of all this age within it, and that kind of accounts for those things. And so I really don't know, but these are kind of theories that people will kind of throw around and try to figure through this. So. I will ask my question. <laughs> okay. So it's already in there, so you don't have to read it. But um, I had a uh, conversation with a heathen a few months ago. and um, It's common language for him, by the way. And basically, this has happened multiple times in my discourses with such people. When you start trying to talk about the truth and the power of the scriptures, a lot of the things that they'll go to is like relativism in truth. They'll say, well, uh, especially the last person I was talking to is like, I think all religions are just equally valid and equally invalid and there's beauty in all of them and so Islam is true at the same time that Christianity is true and, you know, or, um, or uh, Deepak Chopra will talk about the same thing, like we all have these different views that are all equally valid because God's just this infinite being who we just can't uh, understand possibly ever. And so I wanted to know how you deal with something that's so incoherent as it just denies the apparent knowledge that like contradictions like that don't exist. Like Islam and Christianity can't be equally true at the same time. When I use the example in my text, like Christianity says Jesus is God and the Son of God. Islam says he's not God and he's not the Son of God. So how can those be true? And people are just silly. So how would you get through to such a person? I mean, it's you. <laughs> I would first ask them if they've ever said such nonsense to a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Hindu. Because that is equally offensive to every single person that adheres to those religions. Like, you can only say that if you're not a member of any of those religions. Like, to be a non-religious person, you get the like the benefit of being foolish like that. So, like I would say, just so you know, you're saying something that... How many billions of people in the world are there? Seven. I'll give you three to four billion think you're nuts. Like, think you are nuts. Because, like, our faiths like, are very, very mutually exclusive. And from the inside, none of us believe such nonsense. And if they do, that's because they're on the outside. They just don't know. You know? <laughs> um, and then the second thing that I would ask them, I said, have you ever read the Quran? And have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? Have you ever read these, like, sacred texts that these that these religions will fight and die for. And usually you'll find no. Like I, like I got my, all my intel from YouTube. Okay, so you're a YouTube, like that's your, you're a YouTube authoritarian. That's real helpful. Just so you know, like, that, like you can't go into Dr. White's class and quote any sort of fact based on YouTube or Wikipedia or any other such nonsense that like average people with no qualifications can contribute information to. Doesn't stop them from trying. Doesn't stop them from trying, <laughs> but it does not hold water. And so first I would say, have you ever wondered, like, why none of the religions talk like this? Why you are on the outside and you've discovered some magical path to God that, like, you have this omniscient view of the rest of us? And then I would say, like, why have you not, have you read the text? And then, I'm not just trying to be antagonistic, I'd say, like, I will literally buy you a Quran and a Bible, and I will read them with you. And we will find out very quickly that they disagree so fiercely on mutually exclusive um, propositions or arguments that one of them has to be, like, the only possibility is that um, 
or the only non-possibility is that they're both true. Either one's true and the other's false, or they're both false. But they can't both be true, because like, just like you said, it, and I would say Christianity like, is, is a really good benchmark to work from, because it rises and falls on the deity of Jesus Christ, which Islam can't handle. Um, Hinduism would actually be just happy to throw him into the pantheon of gods. <laughs> we'll build him a nice little statue. He'll have feathered hair. But um, but that's where the Bible would refuse that. Because the Bible is incredibly monotheistic and would have no room for a pantheon of gods. And um, and so you... Yes, exactly. That's what, that's what Buddhism would or Hinduism would do with Jesus. They'd make a little porcelain statue. Take issue with this statement. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I, I always offer to people when they make a claim like that, let's just investigate it. I don't think you're right, and, and out of kindness to you, I'm willing to kind of like suspend my aggression on this for a while until we can study through it. And I think if we study through it, you'll realize that you might not agree with me that Christianity is right, but I think that at the very least you should be able to admit as a thinking human being that these religions are anything but pointing at the same direction. So, so Ryan, may I ask a question that hopefully your friend, if he's reasonably bright at all, would then reply and say, okay, well, but sure, we have these different faiths, these different gods that different subpopulations of man has created over time in man's own image or whatever, right? So, so what's the response that you now have to this individual that says, okay, you know, why should I believe that any of them would be true? There's just a bunch of different ones. Yeah. Fine. So if, if we come to the conclusion that they don't agree with one another, but they are all equally false, I would say, now we're going to have a real fun game investigating the historical like proofs of the resurrection. Yeah. Because my Bible, which I believe to be trustworthy, says that if you can, if you can convince me, with and I'm not saying like prove it 100%, but if you can, can like give me... Um, reasonable doubt that the resurrection did not take place in 29 AD or 33 AD, however the dating happened. If you can convince me that that didn't happen, then fine. I'll, you pick my new religion. I'll be anything else because it doesn't matter. If the resurrection didn't happen, and I think that there's plenty of evidence that it did, but if you can convince me that it didn't, then Christianity is a fool's errand. Yeah. And Paul says we, of all people, should be pitied. Yes. Yeah. Um, kind of going off with Anthony is that I'm studying Asian philosophy right now, and just like paradigms are completely different, mm -hmm. so it's not even just like the way we think about things, but it's also how we like process things. Um, and I really just enjoy like their culture because um, it actually points closer to Jesus than I think our paradigm is, like Western civilization, because like all about us, and they're definitely more selfless and just living for the greater good, mm -hmm. which is how Jesus lived. But how would you go about, because I just never grew up, and I, I don't know, and I don't even feel convicted, but I've just heard so many people say, like, go up to people who aren't the same. And if you know anything about the Asian culture at all, like, saying that's wrong is, like, it's not even loving. It's not even just, like, disrespectful. It's just not loving. Like, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even know what to do with that. Like, you're wrong, I'm right. And then, in a, like, we believe, like, the reason for God that Western civilization, like, American Christianity is the right Christianity. So like, how would you go about going with, like, talking to someone who doesn't even come from this same background? Like, is it okay to even say, you're wrong, I'm right? Or is it okay to, does that make sense? Like, that yeah. whole confrontation of, you're wrong, I'm right. Like, what, 
What are your thoughts on? Well, you're talking about uh, largely honor and shame societies. So from more of an Eastern perspective, so there there needs to like I can I can go at it with a typical American because we both kind of have this individualistic arrogance deep exactly. down in us, yeah. right? When you go to more of an Eastern mindset, you really need to honor people as you disagree with them right. and care for them. And it's also helpful to remember Christianity is an Eastern religion. It came out of Judaism, which is far more Eastern than it is Western. Mm -hmm. And Jesus had no problem telling people they were wrong. He'd flip a table over if he needed to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, more than a, being concerned with offending people, which we ought to be concerned with offending people, I would be far more concerned with failing to tell them the truth. Right. Yeah. And I'm sorry if the, if the truth, the implications are that you're wrong. Like, I love you too much to not, to not share something like that. The truth could be it. There's one more, yeah. Yep. Abby. Um, so kind of going off the question a little bit, um, how would you deal with or even just pray for um, a non believer who seems like they like totally have a like feel no need for Christ? Because I feel like a lot of the things that we say are based on the assumption that like, oh your life is horrible without Christ and you know, your life is not fulfilling, but if this person seems like I think the answer to the question is yes. If you if you really believe Jesus is who we who the Bible says he is, and if, if he is the Son of God who deserves our worship and our praise, then um, then I think it's totally fine to pray that they would come to a realization of their need for him, and whatever that happens. Um, you know, the, the more I know somebody, the more I can pray specifically, and so I have someone really close to me that has chosen to walk away, and, and so... The longer they're walking away, the more intently I pray that God would do something to get their attention, and whatever means necessary. And I mean, the, 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 the beautiful thing about that, I can pray whatever. I, the beautiful thing about that is knowing, and this is what I believe, knowing that God knows and loves Him more than I could ever. And so, what what am I going to ask God to do that He's going to be like, oh, you want me to do that? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing I could ask God to do that God. Either it would go, okay, chill, or, yeah, I got it, thanks. You know, I mean, what, what am I going to ask God to do to somebody that he, that is going to go against his character and against his love and his knowledge of them and wanting what's best for them? So, so yeah, this, I think it's totally fine to pray that God would get their attention and help them see their, their need for him. So, do that. In fact, do that for believers, too. All right, guys, thanks. To, first of all, you want to thank these guys real quick for coming here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really do appreciate them coming and spending some time with us to, to answer questions tonight. I don't know if they got to get back, so if they, if they got to get back, then let them get back. But if they're hanging out here, if they start headed for the door, just clear out and let them go, okay? But if they hang up here for a little bit, then that probably means you could ask some more questions. And let me just encourage you, don't, don't feel like questions have to 
wait for this night or or end on this night, right? Like this is what we love to do is to talk about big things with you. And so if you've got questions, then they're, they're here, we're here, Rachel is here, and, and we'd love to be able to chat through those things. If you're, if you're struggling with stuff you're hearing in class and you need some answers, if maybe you're, you're not actually a Christian here tonight and this all sounds a little bit crazy, you can't ask us anything that's going to offend us. Um, like we won't get, we won't get, and we'd love to talk through some of those things with you. So we'd love that. Let me say one more thing. Be sure if you've got questions about light bears to find Stephen here about the apartment there or the townhomes. Sorry. Um, getting in those townhomes. Let me pray for us and we'll be done, okay? Dear God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, your grace in our ignorance and in our um, wondering. And, and thank you for being a God that is so big that there's always more questions to ask. That's one of, I think, my, my new favorite things about you. Um, is that there's always more to ask and always more to learn. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us hungry hearts to know more of you and that you would um, satisfy us with answers but then give us just a, a thirst for more and that we would only find our great satisfaction in, in not just knowing about you but knowing you. May your Holy Spirit